Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are our precious and treasured possession, that in Christ all the riches of the kingdom of God are available for us, Your children. We have become heirs of the promise along with Abraham through faith. We are joined to our Lord Jesus Christ, grafted in as Gentiles by the sovereign, regenerating work, the Spirit of God, raising us to newness of life and giving us a new name. We thank You that we are Your children. You are our Father. And because of the adopting power of Christ's blood, we have assurance of our salvation and we have fellowship with the Beloved and we have union with our Savior forever. I pray in this service, as the communion elements will be partaken by Your people later, as we open up the Scriptures to set our minds, our hearts, and our affections upon the glorious truths therein contained, I pray that You would quicken us to faithful obedience, that we might hold fast to the confession of the Gospel, that we might be faithfully serving You, Lord, when You return or when You call us home, in all that You might be glorified to the praise of Your glorious grace, and we might be included in the Great Commission, to have that privilege of sharing Jesus Christ with others in word and deed. We thank You for this day that You have made. We choose right now, Lord Jesus, and with thankful hearts to rejoice and to take in it. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. I invite you to stand or to remain standing and to open up your scriptures to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. This morning we'll continue in our series in the book of Hebrews, which leads us to the theme of hold fast. And that's the title of this message. And you'll hear those words in the last verse we read this morning. So follow me as I read these 14 verses in Hebrews 4 verses 1 through 14. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As He has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world, for He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again in this passage He says, They shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David. So long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works as God did from His, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, 
so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Verse 14. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We need not wonder as we read Hebrews chapter 4, what is the goal of this charge in verse 14, to hold fast. Holding fast for the believer has as its end, as its purpose, as its goal, the term rest that we see. The term rest is ubiquitously occurring in this passage over and over again. We read of this term in the Scriptures, especially here in Hebrews. In fact, as I recall, eight of the nine mentions of this unique Greek word appear right here in this section. Chapter 4, verse 1, again, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it. Again, we read of this promised goal of holding fast, the end and the aim of the perseverance of the saints in verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, these words quoted, cited from Psalm 95 are repeated, they shall not enter my rest in verse 5. Again, the word appears in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And this day is described by this future rest again in verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And then finally in verse 11, therefore let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall of the same sort by the same sort of disobedience. This term rest appears over and over again and orients our thinking and our expectation as a perseverant Christian, trusting that the Holy Spirit's indwelling would give us grace to continue to bear fruits in keeping with repentance, this term rest identifies for us a future, something that we have in part now, but we'll have in full in glory. Rest, as we mentioned the last time we were in this passage, could be described perhaps as the utmost of salvation. We have salvation on an individual, personal basis from the hell that our sin deserved, from the eternal wrath and torment and judgment that sinful hearts deserve. We have rest from that condemnation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in this way, each of us in Christ have salvation. But Hebrews and the rest of the Scriptures testify, we have yet more. Not only do we have a mere escape, a mere safety from and salvation from hell itself and eternal damnation and suffering. But we have indeed a future well described by these three words, utmost of salvation, which includes a future and a hope and glory in heaven of communion, of joy, of riches, of providential, a superabounding of God's glorious redemptive work in the environment, in the architecture, 
in the communion we have with the saints, in the glorious revelation of the Lord, even in the beautiful gemstones and golden pictures and imagery we see by way of metaphor in the book of Revelation. This is the rest that's promised in the future. This is the utmost of salvation. The term rest is further expounded in Thayer's Greek lexicon as follows. Summary thoughts from these passages and others in Hebrews and beyond. He says, the heavenly blessedness. What is rest? Rest is the heavenly blessedness in which God dwells, of which He has promised to make persevering believers in Christ partakers after the toils and trials of life on earth are ended. Reading again, this glorious rest could be described as the heavenly blessedness in which God dwells, of which He has promised to make every persevering believer in Christ a partaker after the toils and trials of life on earth are ended. These toils and trials come to mind when we see the picture in verse 14 of holding on, of taking hold and holding fast to our confession. Of striving, as it says in verse 11, to enter that rest. Trial and difficulty are the reality now. But blessedness and rest are the reality later. Riches super abounding in the experience of every saint, ransomed by Christ's blood and resurrected to glory. Eight of these nine occurrences, as I mentioned to you, of this term appear here in Hebrews. And we've identified and summarized some of these big picture truths, especially as the term Sabbath is employed alongside rest to give us an idea of what the author means to convey. He's drawing on imagery throughout covenant history. The Sabbaths of the Old Covenant now join with the promises of the New to share the idea and the hope for the believer's future. And from this section and in prior messages, we have put together some thoughts and summary of what is Sabbath rest. We have heard Thayer expound on what is rest itself, but if we add that idea of Sabbath to it, perhaps we have even a further description of what Hebrews promises as the reassuring, covenantal signature of God's favor, heralding through creation and His Word, that is, holy oracle, to otherwise restless man, the sovereign course and consummation of all redemptive history. The Sabbath rest promised in Hebrews draws together all of what appear to the un. Uh, to, to the passing observer as loose ends and draws them all together in a beautiful, intricately, perfectly predestined, woven piece of God's craftsmanship. And it speaks of a reassuring, covenantal signature of God's favor, a promise, a secure hope. And it's trumpeted, it's proclaimed, it's heralded, it's announced throughout Holy Oracle, all of Scripture, and even in creation itself, which groans for that day of recreation. To the otherwise restless man, we have peace with God, and we see into the future through the pages of prophetic Scripture the sovereign course and consummation of all redemptive history. The church of Jesus Christ, therefore, I submit to you, is those who are rest-bound. We are headed for this rest, this consummation, this glorious future. And we are the ones who are rest-bound and hold fast, in the meantime, clinging to promises like these. 
clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ, bearing with the fellowship of His sufferings, enduring trial and temptation, looking to Him who has gone before, knowing that we have not yet resisted as He did unto bloodshed, but placing before us as He did the joy of His glorious work, and thus enduring the cross, so we place before us that which His work secured in our eternal life, and with encouragement and perseverance, hold fast as the rest bound in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 expounds and explains some of these glorious truths, and even paradoxical truths, along these lines. It explains truths that may not at first appear naturally to occur alongside one another, paradoxes, might appear, again, to the passing observer as a con- conflicting ideas or contradictions, but indeed they are not. But these paradoxical truths help us to understand what life looks like this side of glory and what the future looks like beyond this veil of tears. And all through Hebrews, and including this chapter, we have this theme coming to the surface, an emphasis of the tenacity, the tenacity, the endurance, characterizing the perseverance of the saints. I don't know if you guys saw, and I'm not sure I'd recommend it because it's been too long to know whether it's a good movie or not, but I have an image in my mind I want to pass along to you from a historical epic film called Master and Commander. I don't know if the plot was all that great, but I did grab from it one imagery that helps to illustrate the message today. At a particular point in a journey on this, you know, period sailing vessel, you know, multiple masts, and it's like 1800s or what have you, and there's a storm. The rollers of the sea, you know, the sea turns into mountains and valleys of water. And the ship is canting back and forth, listing to something like 45 degrees. Sheets of stormy rain are blowing, and ropes are thrown to the wind. Water is washing back and forth over this deck. And anywhere where there's something to grab, you find a sailor on that deck of that vessel hanging on for dear life. There's an old man among them. And at first, as your eye is viewing, you know, the casual viewer of this movie, you see that, oh, this, is guy, this guy's going to be the first one washed off the ship. A grisly, old, hardened, salty, you know, seagoer who's probably more, spent more time on the waves than on land is the picture you get when you look at him. But you think of this poor soul and this pitiful chap. He's going to be thrown into the sea, no doubt. But then the camera zooms in, and through the sheets of stormy rain, you see his knuckles, as white as can be, holding on to a piece of the railing of that ship and tattooed on each of his fingers in between the first and second knuckle is H-O-L-D-F-A-S-T. Hold fast. I remember watching that film and seeing that scene, and as soon as I saw tattooed on his knuckles, hold fast, I had no worries about this man. I thought he'll be the last to be washed over. He's probably endured many storms such as this. And one day that man might die. But you'll probably find his skeleton decaying on that wreckage underneath the ocean with hold fast tattooed to those fingers until they're decayed and washed away with the currents of the ocean. That is a picture much like our calling this side of glory. Hebrews says with tenacious ferocity, to hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to what? We'll find that in due course. But let me outline for you, and I hope this represents 
a good way to organize Hebrews chapter 4, four paradoxes. That is surprising truths in this chapter. Number one, good news and fear. We are to fear, but we are to fear lest we should seem to have failed to reach it. We reach what? Well, that rest that is promised. And we know that this rest is promised on account of good news. So fear and good news go hand in hand in the life and the confession of the tenacious, holding fast believer in Hebrews 4. A second paradox. Today, there's an element of urgency and present uh, reality today, but there's also this idea of long afterwards. In other words, um, in Chapter 7, it says, He appoints a certain day today, saying to David, So long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. So there's this instruction that there was things that were a reality for that day, but then they were referred to by later generations and thus have a future orientation. There's a reality for today. There's a reality long afterwards for the believer. Thirdly, surprising truths. The commandment in, chapter, in verse 11 of chapter 4 is to strive to rest. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We are to work hard. We are to persevere. We are to dig in in order to move towards rest. That's a paradox. And then finally, there is the living word, the living logos. When we think of the term, the Greek word logos, if we were to read it in just any old literature, pagan or otherwise, contemporary, we would think of maybe logic, a proposition, idea, or message. But in this passage, it is more. The logos, the Greek term for word, is used in a living sense and even in a personal sense. So those are our four paradoxes in Hebrews chapter 4. Good news and fear. Today and long afterwards, strive to rest in living logos, living word. First of all, good news and fear. Again, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, detail for us the following. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as He has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished, finished from the foundation of the world. The tone of Hebrews chapter 4 strikes a chord with many other passages in the book of Hebrews. We've mentioned some already, and we'll mention more in the course of our study. Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews 10 come to mind. Warning language of stark and dire consequences for losing our connection to, our faith in, our fidelity to the confession, the message, the faith. There are those who associate, however superficially to our our eyes, it will be shocking indeed, there are those who associate to a great external degree with the fellowship of the saints, yet will be apostate eventually and fall away. And I'm sure you know a few people in your own mind And it shocks you as you look back over your Christian life and think of one or two or maybe many in the course of your experience who have not held fast, who didn't have tattooed, as it were, on their spiritual hands, hold fast, but they got distracted. Their eyes looked right and left, 
Their hands let go of the faith to grasp other things, material possessions, hope that this world offers, perhaps a pathway of ease, maybe progress as this life, success as this realm defines it, and they have left the faith. This is the warning language that Hebrews employs over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And here again, the warning is tied to the message. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by the gifts of the Spirit distributed according to His will. Today, if you hear His voice, it says in chapter 3, 7, again quoting Psalm 95, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. And then again, Hebrews 4, 1 exhorts us, Well, the promise, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear. That is, let us stand with concern, sobriety, and awe. Let us take so seriously. Let us pause and count the costs and consider how frail we are in the flesh. How needful it is that the Spirit, and through His sovereign work in us, give us the clinging power to hold fast to Christ. Why? If we do not fear, if we do not avail ourselves of even the means of warning and admonition from Hebrews, then we are in danger. There is a great warning that we should hear in our souls this morning. If we separated ourselves any length and measure from the means of God's keeping grace, let us fear, lest any of us should seem to have failed to reach it. And of course, this language of warning, this hortatory or exhortational Language is thematic in Hebrews, and it's connected once again in this passage to this term, good news. The term good news is synonymous with the gospel. In the scriptures, when Jesus Christ is born, the angels come heralding good tidings of great joy. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You will find Him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That was an example of a heralding summons, good news. Good news means to proclaim glad tidings, joyful announcement, a proclamation, certainty that truth has visited you. Salvation has come. Today is the day of salvation. This is the message. This is the good news that Scripture delivers to us. And in Hebrews, it comes to us. From the very beginning, turn back a few pages in chapter 1 and listen to the message. The message that our author would have us keep in mind when we consider that we ought to fear. Fear and remember the following. Long ago, 1-1, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So here we see the themes of Hebrews that overarch from chapter 1 to the end of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ, 
We've considered his supremacy briefly. Now let's consider the sufficiency that our author states in just a few sentences in this same passage. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The sovereignty of Christ ruling and reigning over all and the sufficiency of Christ the once for all sacrifice for sin. This is the message to treasure, to meditate on, to memorize, to consider, and to fear lest we lose it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, the message, according to the author of Hebrews, is reiterated. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what? To what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This great salvation I submit to you, in a nutshell, is the message that Hebrews would have us, the author of Hebrews would have us consider and remember and fear lest we lose. It was, in verse 3, declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The message of Hebrews is this. The Old Covenant had exclamation points that came after the heralding message. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. We have proof of that in the mighty works that led Israel out of slavery and captivity in Egypt into the promised land. The provision of the Almighty God leading them with manifestations of His extraordinary miraculous power. This was an exclamation point at the end of the message. And these are the works that were to be remembered and to be communicated to the next generation in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. These were the things. This was the substance that was to be taught to the next generation. But the message of Hebrews is this. The message as we have received it has received a multiplicity of exclamation points more than the Old Covenant. If you thought it was amazing how God worked in the Old, add the punctuation of the finished work of Calvary. Add the punctuation of the Holy Spirit visiting His church at Pentecost. Add the exclamation point of miracles done by Jesus showing Himself to be Yahweh as He walks across the sea, as He calms the storm by the word of His power, as He delegates the apostolic wave of emissaries to bring the good news to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. If you've ever read the Old Testament and thought, if I was there at Sinai, when that fire and that storm and that lightning and that booming voice of many trumpets deafened the ears of millions, if you ever imagined yourself in that situation and thought, I would certainly fear, the message of Hebrews is, you, believer, saint, now born in this administration of covenant reality, have far more reason to fear. It is good news, but it is good news so weighty and so valuable And so much is at stake that we are to fear lest we ever minimize, downplay, or lose it, take it for granted, sell it for a bowl of pottage, or leave it in the distant corner of our mind and hang on to something else and not hold fast to Christ. There is a continuity in this message, 
even though it has been moving to a crescendo in the new. In this section, it says, just as I gave you the Old Testament examples, but just as they heard this news, so we have heard. For the good news came to us, again, Hebrews 4, 2, just as it had come to them. For the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. There is a unified message through all of Scripture. As I said, it has been building to a crescendo. If you could hear it as a musical score, we would hear even now the strings of accompaniment building and drawing to the climax as all of history moves forward toward the utmost of salvation, the rest promised for all believers, the glorious future that the Gospels and Hebrews prophesy. Yet this gospel had been proclaimed all the way through the text of the entire covenant work of redemption. Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 talks about the gospel as it was shared with our father of the faith, Abraham. Thus this essential theme is shared in the old and the new. That is, both the promise of the old is now added to the evangel, to the message of Christ come, crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascended, for the salvation of sins and for the ruling and reigning over His kingdom. The essential theme is shared across scriptural lines, but now promise and evangel come together to only strengthen the case to fear the Lord, lest we lose or take lightly or drift from so great a salvation. This is an argument in the text for a covenantal scope of the Bible. Rather than seeing God's ideas and His influence and history and His way of interacting with His people as segregated and segmented into He did it this way then and that way now, the book of Hebrews confesses no. He is simply built on a foundation, what the author calls the apostles and the prophets of old. But in these last days, He has trumpeted and stood on their shoulders with the message from the mouth of the very Son of God Today is the day of salvation, and he listed or stated here as the majesty on high has become as much superior to all the angels, which represented the delivery mechanism of the old covenant. He, that is Christ, the majesty on high, has become much superior as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, and as the gospel it has proclaimed is more sufficient than it had ever been declared, though it was present in seed form in the old It is blossoming to glorious new life in the new. Thus, this good news ought to be met not just with joy, praise and worship, which is appropriate and commanded as we have done this morning, but also a healthy dose of fear, of awe, of reverential respect, so that we do not lose our grip on the glorious truths of our salvation. Finally, under good news and fear, there's there's this idea that bookmarks the end of our section uh, this morning in verse 14 of confession. It says, Since then we have a great high priest. Again, speaking of Christ in this term, this priestly office will be expounded in the pages following. It says, Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What is a confession? Well, I submit to you that term confession is a unified agreement, a statement of faith, if you will, by all those who are bound together under a truth that is over them. Thus, this confession is simply this personal statement on the lips and in the hearts of each 
of the covenanted and the blood-bought, mixing their voices together, saying, I am a saint, resurrected and seated with Jesus Christ. I am a born-again son of God and a brother and an heir of Abraham and a brother of Jesus Christ, use the language the book of Hebrews. Thus, in this section, as we see in the rest of Scripture, for instance, Romans 10, 14, there's three aspects of the gospel that come together. The message, as we have detailed, the hearing, which comes through preaching and faith. Romans 10, 14 reminds us, how are they to believe on Him who they have not heard? And the idea there is God has ordained that His message be proclaimed. And in the hearing of those who are called, that message will produce fruit of faith. It will take root and bloom on the fertile soil of the Spirit's preparation. And the message and the hearing and the confession of faith then will come together. And those who experience and associate in that context are the church of Jesus Christ. They are those who treasure the good news with fear. They are the ones who hold fast. They are the rest bound who place their hope in a glorious future. Secondly, this morning we're considering paradoxes in Hebrews chapter 4. After good news and fear, let us consider today and long afterwards. In the second half of verse 3, it says, Although His works, speaking of God and creation, were finished from the foundation of the world, for He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again in this passage He said, They shall not enter My rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, He appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later. This day long afterward. So notice that there is an already or a right now, and then there's a future orientation to the truth of the message. God, at creation, instituted the Sabbath. I have termed this in, the, in past messages the predest Sabbath of predestination. That is, God finished His work of ex nihilo, out of nothing creation, and rested on the seventh day. And as Augustine says, that was a Sabbath with no sunset. You see, the provisional Sabbath, which was celebrated weekly in the Old Testament, and we affirm on the Lord's Day even right now, was a Sabbath with a sunset. We have a recurring testimony to a future rest that happens weekly. Yet in between, we still toil under the vestiges of the curse. But God, when He completes His work, it's as good as done because He predestines the future. And when He speaks, His every word is truth and never returns void and has absolute creative power. When God rested after creating this earth as a pattern of His works in history and our devotion to Him on six days, it was a Sabbath that is an assurance and a finality and a declaration of it is finished forever. And that's what the author alludes to when he says, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world, when God decides in His decree to accomplish something, 
It is done from the beginning. He works outside of time. He is absolutely sovereign. God also works. God works in another sense yet today, and we're thankful for it. He works in His providence. He works in His judgments, and He works in His grace. That's His continuing work, if you will. But His created work, His creation work, is indeed finished. So there is an aspect of what is promised and proclaimed that is as good as done, established forever, and secure and absolute. And that forms the foundation of the way our author moves through his arguments. This first uh, idea of Sabbath is emblematic of the utmost of salvation, of ultimate consummation, of the decree and the glorious future as sure as God's nature for those who are in Him. Yet there are those who preach the gospel and have been anointed as figures to represent Christ through history. And so here we have um, these figures listed for us, a few of them. First of all, Moses. Moses' name shows up in the text in chapter 3, verse 2. Who was faithful to him, uh, who appointed him just as Moses. Speaking of Christ here, Christ was faithful to him, who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So there's a comparison between uh, Moses as a prior figure in covenant history to Jesus. Later in verse 16, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So here we see Moses as a salvation figure, if you will, as a provisional, temporary, mere man and sinner, but yet a picture of the mediatorial work of Christ who prefigured, who preceded Christ. But even though Moses led his people out and was significant and called to do so and God worked in mighty ways, still there were those who fell away and fell, again, the great portion, the great majority of them, in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. So you see that there are these milestones of redemptive truth, yet they're all looking forward. So we've covered Moses. Now we pick up on David. It says in verse 7, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, Through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 8 is another flashback. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So here's the picture. There is a reality and an assurance of salvation today, no matter when you are born in covenant history. But... Just as Moses died in the wilderness and thus thus proved himself not to be the Messiah, those who had eyes to see at that time would have known there remains another who would come. If the rest of Canaan had been sufficient, if that had been the full manifest uh, representation of God's promise of rest, then God would not have brought up the term again later in David. If Joshua had given them rest, if Canaan was the ultimate of the expectation of salvation, then David would not have picked up on this language and proclaimed yet a future rest that would happen after him. So we see a hint of what was to come in Moses, and then Joshua, and then David, and all who recorded the truth of the message in Scripture. But we see the fulfillment of all these types and shadows in their their substance And in the rock, Jesus Christ. And this is the message. 
There is something now that is assured, no matter what time you are born, but in Christ there is a future mediator who, are, who will ever live to make intercession for every one. And even we who are born right now, though privileged to know the resurrected Jesus Christ, our Lord, there is still yet a future orientation to the promises of our salvation. Verse 9, So then there remains yet a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. So here's the picture. For now, you and I are called to strive. You and I are called to hold fast. But the promise is, there is, a coming, there is coming a day in our near future where that striving and that white-knuckled holding fast will give way to a resting from our toil and our trials in this earth. And just as God Himself rested from His work and that Sabbath had no sunset after the creation week, we will enter into a perennial Sabbath in glory with no sunset when we are brought from this veil of tears into heaven, into glory eternal. What an amazing promise we have. Hebrews continues to develop this theme Flash forward with me, if you would, to chapter 12, where we see in more shades of revelatory glory what this future looks like. Chapter 12, verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So in our perfect mediator, we have the perfect Mount Zion, city of God experience to look forward to, the heavenly Jerusalem, where we will join in the marriage supper of the Lamb, festal gathering with innumerable angels, all the glories of the celestial realm we will behold tangibly in our experience when we enter into that glorious rest, the utmost of salvation. We, the restbound, look forward to this promise and we strive to enter it. And that brings up the, the third paradox this morning, strive to rest. Again, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11 say as much. We read, For whoever has entered God's rest, has rested from His works as God did from His. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That term rest, or the term strive, rather, I looked up in the Greek, and it's the same word that Paul is so fond of using. If you recall in our Second Corinthians study, chapters 8 and 9, he talks about zeal and earnestness. He talks about striving. And Paul exemplified this better than any other human example I can think of in Scripture. A kind of leaning into the wind and to the bitter end of life itself before he's on the chopping block. The sword of persecution takes his life as we see him even prophesying and, and uh, seeing in his own future a martyr's death. Nevertheless, he pressed on, did he not? to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
He strove to enter that rest. There is a hard work. There's an earnestness, a tenacity, a perseverance, a zeal. There is this resolve to never give up, to never quit, to bite our teeth and trust God for one more ounce of energy. And that's that picture of wind-blown, storm-tossed waves, and those sheets of icy rain cover the deck of that you know, period uh, 1800s sailing ship. We ought to be the one with white knuckles grasping that rope with all we have tattooed on our fingers. Hold fast. Let us strive to enter that rest. This is the picture. Psalm 95, which is cited at length in this section, reminds us even in its prelude before the uh, references that are cited to not forget the testimony of those in the wilderness. And Hebrews chapter 4 also in chapter 3 remind us that the lessons of Exodus are meant to teach us something. And in this way, by a negative example, the children of Israel did not strive to enter the promised land. They grew weary and complained in the wilderness. They were not willing to count the cost of 40 years of wandering in order to enter that next stage of their existence where God had promised them a flourishing existence of private property and overflowing barns of plenty and milk and honey in this new land. And because of that, they were judged and condemned and died in the wilderness. Yet these words were written down as examples for us who would come after. And Psalm 95 says as much. 1 Corinthians tells us this. Hebrews 3 and 4, and we go back to this psalm, and David opens it by saying, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And that term rock reminds us of Moses himself who was the first under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to introduce to us the name of God Himself as the rock. This rock is later identified with Christ. I believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock in the wilderness was Christ. The Israelites did not see the rock in the wilderness. They did not know the Lord as their foundation, their security, and their anchor, regardless of the length of journey or the endurance that was required. They wanted to go back to a foundation that they had in their tangible experience. They wanted the leeks and onions of Egypt, the predictable lifestyle, the certainty of what was going to happen tomorrow, and the little shack of a roof over their head. Wouldn't it be better than this after all, even if it meant going back to slavery? The reminder in Hebrews and in Psalm 95 is consider the rock of your salvation. No matter how tightly you have to hold to the last scrap of this ship during this storm. Hold on tightly and remember, He is the rock of your salvation. Verse 2 and 95 of the Psalms. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And of course, we're reminded of the centrality of tabernacle worship. Regularly in the New Testament fulfillment, gathering with the assembly of the beloved. Hebrews has just told us not to forsake the assembly of the beloved, but exhort each other daily so don't become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That will be a recurring theme. Don't grow weary and don't be worn out. And don't embrace the sorrow of soul by ostracizing and alienating yourself from the assembly from the gathered people of God in the presence of God, what we are doing this morning. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God, and a great King above all gods. And here we see in this reference of above all gods that this rest 
was a rest without rival, that the promises would not be unseated by the gods of Egypt, the gods of Canaan, but God would be successful in His perfect will and timing through His covenant people. And then it says in verse 4, In His hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also, the sea is His, for He made it, His hands formed the dry ground. O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And here we have reference to the creation week and what God has done through His work in those six days. And here are the creation Sabbath implications. The people and the sheep of His pasture, the sheep of His hand, which Psalm 95 goes on to say, now identify us with ownership to Him. It says, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice. So again, in summary, understand that this earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and those that dwell therein. And even you, as His own and His little sheep, is called and set apart for Him. So in Psalm 95, it tells us to learn from the uh, testimony of those who have gone before, even in the prelude and in those uh, sections that are cited, to stand fast, to strive to enter, to hold fast, to not lose our faith. Even though, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3, that those who preceded us tended to harden their hearts in the wilderness as in the day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Where our fathers put him to the test, they saw his works for 40 years. Therefore, he says in verse 10, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Strive to enter. Strive to rest. Secondly, under strive to rest, consider the Sabbath implications this morning. We, in a prior message, I'll refer you to, you could perhaps go back and listen in February 23, the 23rd of 2014, uh, we delivered a message from this pulpit titled, Lord of the Sabbath. And in there, we identified four aspects of Sabbath. There is a today reality of Sabbath, and there is a forever reality of Sabbath. There is the perennial Sabbath. At at the creation week, the provisional Sabbath of old, what we termed the proactive Sabbath of the Christian church, which celebrates in faith, remembering what Christ has done, but looking forward to what He will do. And then there is the perennial Sabbath, the Sabbath in glory. But remember to consider when we come in fellowship with God's people, we do so weekly in faith. Disobedience to Sabbath keeping says this. It says the work of God is insufficient. Or the promises of God are not fulfilling. If we do not gather as God's people throughout all generations are called to do, to avail ourselves of the preached word, the message, to gather together for the declaration of truth, to pray that in our hearing it would be mixed with faith. So those three elements of the message then come together in our confession, the message our own hearing and faith. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 that the Word of God, after all, is quick and powerful. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces, it penetrates to soul and spirit. We need the preached Word of God. We need to avail ourselves of the means that He provides us so that we hold fast, so that we 
have that tenacity that Hebrews exhorts us to entertain as the perseverant saints. If we lose it, if we do not consider it valuable and avail ourselves of these things, what are we saying? We are saying just as the Sabbath breakers did of old, that the work of God is insufficient. I need to work seven days a week, otherwise I will have no future. No, rest on the seventh day in faith that God's work is sufficient. Your trial and toil will one day give way to a rest from work in glory forever. God's work is sufficient. He provides you your daily bread. More than that, He provides you a sufficient Savior. And secondly, the promises of God are fulfilling. We enjoy the Sabbath and we ought to reverence and respect it and participate in it with joy because it is a testimony. It testifies to the fact that God's promises are enjoyable. They are fulfilling. And so in this way, by taking heed to the example of those who've gone before and by honoring God's means, His ordinary means to keep us now, such as valuing the Sabbath, His holy word, ultimately we will be successful by God's grace through these means to strive to rest. Finally this morning, living logos, living word. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I'm sure familiar text for us all. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There's a conjunctive word, that term for, that is interesting. Notice the transition between 11 and 12. Let us therefore strive to enter the rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for. So this is the rationale. This is the reason. Let us strive for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and so on. And by that conjunctive word there, we see in context what our author is getting at. When he says, obey, he says, and beware, lest you fall among those who disobeyed, verse 11, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. When he says again in verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, he's calling us, conversely, to obedience. He says, strive to enter that rest, that no one may fall by the wayside as those the disobedient wanderers in the wilderness did, for the word of God. We might ask ourselves, obey what? Well, obey the word of God. So there's a link between obedience and then the standard of righteousness. Those who fell in the wilderness did not obey the word of God, the dictates of Sinai. They did not follow his holy law. They did not value it, meditate on it, and treasure it in their hearts the way the psalmist so gloriously expounds in Psalm 119 and elsewhere. But we should not be among those who belittle and take for granted the Holy Word of God. The Word of God is a powerful force. It is powerful, it is penetrating, and it is personal. And it is for this reason that we are to take seriously our situation right now. In the context here, it's not just that the Word of God is an effective tool, but it is also that the Word of God is an omniscient judge. 
Take heed lest you fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active. It is an omniscient judge. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is the kind of judge that can pierce in to the secret recesses of the soul. If you go to a court today and you plead your case, and you say before a mere human judge, you know, I'm sorry, it was never my intention to commit this crime. He may look at circumstances. He may judge your past behavior. He might summon character witnesses. He might read the case against you. And with the best that he can determine, make an approximation whether or not your motive was thus and such. I didn't really mean to do it. But one thing he can never know is what your true motive was for sure. Justice in this life is merely an approximation. We have blunt tools to satisfy our disputes. We have crude means of arbitrating disagreements. But the Word of God, let me tell you, is not so. The Word of God is no approximation. It is no blunt tool. It is no crude means. It is the omniscient judge that reads like a book the thoughts and intents of the heart, reaches into the recesses of the human soul and knows every nook and cranny and recess of our sinfulness and lays it bare. It says that no creature is hidden from His sight. An interesting shift. We went from speaking of the logos in a material sense, if you will, or as an object like a sword, to now a personal sense. Yet we're speaking of the same thing. That is, the Word of God is living. The Word of God is Christ. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So when we think of our duty, when we think of our charge, when we think of our great high priest, we think of also our judge. We think of Him whose word stands as the measure and the rule and the norm, the standard of absolute righteousness. And we uh, pray that the Lord would give us a love and a desire to treasure that word in our heart, that we may not sin against Him, to love and to cherish, to memorize, to meditate, and to saturate, and to think about as we go by the way, as we come in the glorious truths of God. And in this way, we will find ourselves being shaped and molded from glory to glory, even into the image of Jesus Christ, who is the Logos, who is the Word. There is a seamless relationship between the written Word of God and the personal Word of God, Christ. You recall the prologue to John, the Gospel of John? In the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a declared, heralding, message, sense of propositional truth that is incorporated in that term, message, evangel, or logos. But there is also a seamless connection between that propositional reality and the person of Jesus Christ. There is a relationship between the two that is inseparable. And these pronouns introduce this clearly and even abruptly. No creature is hidden, not from the sword's sight, but from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So there in Hebrews chapter 4 is the context of the charge to hold fast. Reading again our final verse in our section this morning. Since then, 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And let let me remind you, even as the Word of God examines the sinful recesses of our heart, that the final thought we are left with in this passage this morning is that Jesus Christ is not just the norm and righteousness which judges all men falling short, but He, praise to His glorious name, is also the great high priest. And as Hebrews has already detailed, indeed, the sacrifice. He has passed through the heavens. He has died on our behalf. He is the one who is the Son of God, the only sufficient sacrifice for our sins. So then, because He has suffered for us, because He bore the wrath of God on our behalf, we can hold fast, looking forward to the rest in glory. We can strive enduring our sanctification process, the trials and tribulations of this life, knowing that our high priest went before and bore the wrath and curse of sin in his stripes and his bloodied and marred visage and body. This is our hope. And herein is the ultimate assurance and means of keeping our hands tightly gripped to the promises of our salvation and to the glorious truth that one day He will usher us into His presence perfectly and forever. This morning, as we transition to communion, remember that this meal before us today, communion itself contains a paradoxical truth. A truth like the ones we studied this morning. There is good news and yet it's, there is fear. There is a, a now reality and a future reality. There is a striving that's required of the rest bound. There is a living word. There is also this truth that in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, that is described in Hebrews as the high priestly calling and the sacrifice of His own body and blood, there is this truth that through His suffering and death, we gain eternal life, and that more abundantly. Like the Passover of old this morning, we are revisiting the altar of deliverance into the rest of our future, of our Canaan, if you will. Communion foretells and reassures us that in this covenant meal, that the course and consummation of all redemptive history promises for us an eternal rest, the utmost of salvation, a future. So let us hold fast. I exhort you, echoing the author of Hebrews this morning, let us hold fast to the finished work of Calvary. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we pray for grace to stand. We pray for a heart to love Your Word. We pray for an understanding and enlightenment of the truth of Jesus Christ to fill our hearts and minds. We pray that Your Word might be written on the tablets of our souls. We pray that all of this might work together by Your Spirit's power to create in us a faithfulness to stir in our hearts an earnestness and a zeal so that we may strive to enter the rest and we might hold fast to Jesus Christ, our sufficient sacrifice. As we partake of these elements this morning representing your broken body, your shed blood, may we be reminded that in our great high priest, priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have assurance of our salvation. 
And it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.